Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here are your hosts, John Joseph Adams and David Barr Kirtley. Hi, this is Dave. And this is John. And welcome to episode 82 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Canadian science fiction author Robert J. Sawyer. His recent books include Rollback, Triggers, and the WWW Trilogy, about the internet becoming self-aware. His most recent book, Red Planet Blues, is a futuristic noir detective story set on Mars. Then stick around after the interview as guest geek Matt London joins us to talk about Games Workshop trademarking the term Space Marines. All right, so let's get to our interview. All right, so we're here with Robert J. Sawyer. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Okay, so first of all, your new novel, Red Planet Blues, started life as a novella called Identity Theft. So just how did that story first come about? Yeah, very interesting. It, the meta story is that uh, Amazon.com was kicking the crap out of book clubs in general. It used to be it was only through book clubs, uh, you know, mail order book clubs, that people in rural areas could get a decent selection. And so the science fiction book club was always a reprint publisher. When Amazon started really eating into their business, they got the brainstorm that they would try some original, only available through the science fiction book club publications. They commissioned the great Mike Resnick to edit an original anthology for them called Down These Dark Spaceways, science fiction, detective fiction, uh, combined together. And he commissioned me and Catherine Asaro and Jack McDevitt, David Gerald, uh, and himself to write uh, novellas for this anthology. And it had not occurred to me to do anything in the noir vein, although I'd always been a fan of that genre. But Mike is the guy who kind of uh, orchestrated the shotgun wedding of the two genres for me. I was very lucky that my novella, which was called Identity Theft, uh, was very well received. It was nominated for the Hugo, it was nominated for the Nebula. It won Spain's top science fiction award, uh, got me 6,000 euro for that. Uh, so it did very well in its own right. And it came out in 2005. But I've gotten a lot of fan mail about it over the years, a lot of very positive feedback. And I really enjoyed the character and the setting. And I thought, you know what? I got 25,000 words of story here. All I have to do is add another 75,000 and I've got a full-length novel. Sounded easy. Turned out to be one of the hardest novels I'd ever written. I mean, what was so challenging about it? What was challenging about going from the novella to the novel? You know, I thought, very easy. You start off with 25,000 words and you're kind of, hey, a quarter of the way there. Boom. But it isn't easy. Part of it isn't easy because I'm going back and trying to write in a voice that I haven't written in for you know, six or seven years at this point, I've changed as a person. My writing style changes only incrementally from book to book, but cumulatively uh, in the half dozen books I'd done in the interim, quite substantially. Uh, my advice to anybody who thinks there's a shortcut to writing a novel by taking an existing piece of work, you know what? That isn't really true. It's going to end up being more work, not less, uh, to try and do justice to what you started with, but also to really give value for money. And I wanted to be absolutely sure that anybody who had already read Identity Theft would not feel they were getting anything less than a full new book's worth of material when they went to buy Red Planet Blues. How about combining the science fiction aspects and the detective aspects? Was, did that come naturally to you or was that a challenge? Yes, that, that did come naturally. 
you know, I've often said that science fiction and fantasy never should have been paired uh, because they're antithetical genres. Science fiction is about things that plausibly might happen. Fantasy is about things that never could happen. They're completely opposite from each other. But science fiction and mystery both prize the rational thought process and both require the reader to go along picking up clues as he or she reads in the mystery, of course, to solve the, the ostensible mystery or crime at the heart of the novel. And in science fiction, we writers artfully salt little clues as to what the whole world of the story is like. We don't stop for a lecture on the politics or the ecological situation at the time, but we drop little hints here and there. And it's the same reading process to read science fiction that goes into reading detective fiction. My very first novel, came out in 1990, called Golden Fleece, was a science fiction detective novel. And I've repeatedly done science fiction mystery crossovers. My Hugo winner uh, from 2003, Hominids, is a science fiction mystery crossover, features uh, a, a lot of courtroom drama that's playing out as uh, one of the major subplots of that novel. I mean, one of my favorite books growing up was Larry Niven's The Long Arm of Gil Hamilton, which is a set of science fiction detective stories. And in that book, he talks about a little bit about the history of the science fiction detective story. And he says that actually John W. Campbell had said it was impossible to write a science fiction detective story. And yeah, and Campbell was wrong, and he wasn't often wrong. Let us let us not run steamroll over John Campbell here in our haste to uh, to mention this. Uh, of course, the great editor of Astounding Stories, which went on to become Analog, the mentor to Asimov, to um, to Clark, to Heinlein, to a whole generation of writers. But yes, he felt that it would be too easy for the detective to say at the end of the story, well, as you know, in fact, we don't know at all, that on the planet Zetox, gravity works in reverse. So of course, the corpse floated to the ceiling, and that's why nobody noticed it when they came into the room and they thought it was simply a missing person's case or whatever, some ludicrous thing that the detective could lay on the unsuspecting reader as almost a deus ex machina, something pulled out of the air to uh, solve the crime. Uh, Niven very adroitly dealt with that issue. And as you say, the long arm of Gil Hamilton, very good story as part of his known space universe. I actually prefer, and I hope Larry will forgive me, what Isaac Asimov did to refute while Campbell was still alive directly to Campbell, um, this notion, and, Cam and of course, uh, the great Asimov novel is The Caves of Steel, which works absolutely perfectly as a mystery story. It works absolutely perfectly as a buddy cop drama, and it works absolutely perfectly as a science fiction novel. It is, to my way of thinking, the best novel that Asimov ever wrote, and it certainly puts to rest uh, this notion, which, you know, uh, Campbell said it. Campbell's a brilliant writer. Campbell wrote Who Goes There, which became John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, uh, this is a guy who did lots of really important writing and uh, editing, but he had this notion that he tossed off, and may we all be forgiven for these little things that we toss off at some point and say, well, of course, this is impossible. Okay, so you say in the introduction that, quote, my working title for this book was The Great Martian Fossil Rush, but my American publisher wanted something that played up the noir angle. I asked for suggestions online and hundreds of possibilities were put forth. And so I was just wondering, do any of those suggestions stand out as being particularly odd or memorable? Oh, at this point, that's that's funny. I've forgotten almost all of them, I have to say. Uh, blood Red was one, though, which is not bad, you know, uh, Red for Mars and the blood. 
But the one that definitely resonated for me immediately was Red Planet Blues. And it was suggested by multiple people in multiple online venues. It's also the only one my U.S. editor, Ginger Buchanan, liked. And we were all set to go. And then, boom, flag on the play. Uh, my friend Michael Walsh points out uh, that Alan Steele had used that or a title for a novella that he'd written in the late 80s. Well, I don't want to you know, use Alan's title without permission. Alan incorporated that novella into a, a book that he called Labyrinth of Night. Uh, Labyrinth of Night was about the face on Mars that's out of print now. Alan considers it justly or, or reasonably out of print in that it, you know, what it wrote about is no longer considered scientifically valid, that there might have been an archaeological artifact that looked like a giant face on the surface of Mars in the Sidonia region. That's just gone from science now. So the book is fallow, out of print. Uh, and he never used the novella or reprinted it subsequently. So he said, I'd be flattered. Go ahead. Use my title. Well, yeah, I mean, and since it was supposed to be called The Great Martian Fossil Rush, obviously it's about the premise is that people are going to Mars looking for fossils. And uh, I mean, just what do you think about that as a scientific possibility? How likely do you think it, oh, it is? That I think that uh, if I w was a betting man, I would bet a substantial amount of money that we will eventually find fossils of life on Mars. I would bet a reasonable amount of money that we will find extant active biology on Mars, subsurface, uh, microbial, but still living. But I think it's, it, it would defy most of our understandings of biogenesis, of um, the basic principles of how life came into being, uh, that Mars was a warm, wet planet, you know, billions of years ago. Uh, that life, if life did not emerge, then we've got to really do have another think coming about how common life is in the universe. Uh, I think we very likely will find fossils on Mars and we'll find them as soon as we get, you know, actual people on the surface. Finding fossils requires covering an awful lot of territory with trained eyes. That's how we do it on Earth. Little Pathfinder and Curiosity and um, Sojourner and so forth aren't quite yet up to that. They're not up to it. We'll get paleontologists to Mars, though, and then we'll find the fossils. And it comes up in the book that fossils on Mars would be different from the fossils that we find on Earth. Could you talk about that? Sure. There are two possible answers to the question of life on Mars, uh, if you accept that there is life on Mars. One is that that life and our life share a common ancestry. That is, biological material was transferred from Mars to Earth or from Earth to Mars, which is a little bit of a harder one to do, on uh, ejecta, material that was kicked out uh, by asteroid or cometary impacts, drifted through the solar system, landed on the other planet, which means that we're all cousins. Martians, humans, we're all cousins. The other option is that there were two separate biogenesis events, one here and one there. And the one there, uh, if it's different, would have given rise to different kinds of life forms. Uh, my Martian fossils are all uh, more or less invertebrate. They're all fairly primitive. They're the equivalent to the things that existed on Earth about 550 million years ago at the beginning of the Cambrian explosion. But on Mars, I have it happening much, much earlier in their history, over 3 billion years ago. Um, when Mars still had an awful lot of surface water. Well, and they wouldn't be mineralized, right? Well, that's an interesting question about how fossilization occurs. On Earth, it mostly is mineralized. Um, that is, you take a, a natural bone, 
and it gets buried in sediment and minerals percolate through the sediment from rainwater and groundwater and fill in the little gaps in the original uh, material, all the little intercellular spaces in your uh, in your bone, for instance, and it gets filled up with minerals and it gets, um, as you say, mineralized or petrified, turned to stone. Uh, what I have with my Martian fossils is very different. Mars underwent a great desiccation. It dried out almost completely. It's a very, very arid planet. And very rapidly, it dried out too. So what I have is things that actually are frozen in permafrost for billions of years uh, and have not been permineralized. When you pick up a Martian fossil and you thaw it out so the permafrost melts away, the shell or the exoskeleton that you get is the actual shell or exoskeleton uh, that was part of a living creature billions of years ago. It's a very different kind of paleontology that's being done on Mars, and I think a plausible one, given the very different geological histories of Mars and Earth. And then the Mars colony in this book is covered by a dome that's described as being made out of aliquots. So uh, what is aliquots? Right, which allo is a prefix that's used in chemistry to mean altered. So it's simply quartz that's been altered. In this particular case, it's been altered so that uh, it's uh, uh, to, has a sharp refractive index for ultraviolet radiation. And uh, helps a little bit with the radiation shielding as well. Quartz is uh, silicon dioxide. It's easy to come by. Uh, it has the property already of being clear, as you well know. It's what glass is made of. And uh, I, I allow for a little bit of um, material science modification of the source material uh, because it is the future. And one of the things John W. Campbell said, and he was right about, is that the future doesn't happen one at a time. You don't get uploaded consciousness as i have in this novel you don't get routine interstellar or sorry interplanetary travel as i have in this novel you don't get uh human hibernation as i have in this novel without also getting a whole bunch of other technological advances as well okay and then just what are some of the basic facts of life on mars that you have to keep in mind when writing a story set there that you wouldn't have to think about in a normal detective novel well, the single best thing about Mars is the reduced gravity. It's 38% of Earth's gravity, about one-third. Almost never have you seen that portrayed in film or television. Mars is just portrayed as a place that's got reddish sand, uh, but otherwise is you know pretty much identical to the Mojave Desert. And that's not the case. Fundamentally very, very different. How that impacts it being a detective story, when you get to being a noir detective story, where your characters end up roughing people up and there's some fisticuffs and there's some face-to-face -face personal combat, you get very, very wild and uh, exciting fight scenes. I like to think that I went to town in writing them in this novel, taking full advantage of the fact that you, you can really pick up somebody and throw them across the room uh, in a way that uh, would be fantastic to watch. The other thing, of course, is that Mars is deadly everywhere except under the dome. Death is very close at hand. And for a mystery story, especially a noir story, it's hard to write a story about how dangerous it is to be in the dark streets of, let's say, London, England. It's the classic example right now, because there are no dark streets anymore in the sense of not being observed by security cameras. Uh, on Mars, you open it up to an area where you've got dark 
spaceways, dark alleyways, places that aren't covered by cameras, and a whole wide planet whose surface area is equal to the surface area of Earth. Dry land surface area is equal between the two planets. Uh, that uh, is an enormous place to run around on where death literally lies around every corner. Okay, and so this book, it describes uh, how the first visitors to Mars were, quote, two crazy adventurers thumbing their noses at all the moribund government space agencies. Yes. How likely do you think that is as a scenario for... Oh, I mean, look at the front page headlines these days. Is private sector going to be the way that space exploration is going to happen, especially manned space exploration? The obvious answer is that the only initiatives towards manned space exploration that are going on right now are private sector ones. We understand the profit motive for going to mine the asteroids, for going to mine things on the moon, for going to mine things on Mars, the enormous tourism opportunities. Uh, and I embrace that with the, all the gung-ho-ness that has gone with the private sector opening up the American West and where I live in Canada, the, our whole north was opened up by the Hudson's Bay Company, um, which was a, a company of adventurers and explorers very much in pursuit of the wealth of the fur trade. Believe me, it wasn't the Geological Survey of Canada, nor was it the Geological Survey of America that uh, spread out and, and tamed the land. It was people who thought there was a buck to be made and endured enormous hardship to go and get that buck. Well, yeah, and you mentioned in the introduction that this book was partially inspired by a trip you took, I think, to the Yukon and that you stayed at maybe Jack London's house, something like that. Uh, I stayed across the street from Jack London's mm -hmm. house. I stayed at Pierre Burton's house. Name won't mean anything to most Americans, but to Canadians, um, he's um, the great Canadian writer of popular history. He's our Shelby Foote and our Alex Haley rolled into one. And he has uh, bought back his childhood home in Dawson City heart of the Klondike gold rush. And uh, it's a very competitive writer's retreat. You apply for it. Lots of people want to get the opportunity. I was lucky enough to get the opportunity to spend three months living there across the street from uh, Jack London's uh, cabin, just down the street from Robert Service's cabin, right where all of the madness of the great Klondike gold rush took place. And that was the template for my great Martian fossil rush. And there's actually, there's a writer's retreat on Mars in this book, too. There is. That's right. There absolutely is. On a similar basis that a well-to-do, in this case, uh, adventure novelist, actually patterned a bit on Jack London, uh, has uh, left uh, a stipend uh, in his uh, will to make it possible for writers to go and spend some time on the Red Planet uh, and hopefully capture it in a way that perhaps the scientists are not uh, able to and the way the greedy uh, throngs who are rushing there to make money aren't bothering to take the time to. Okay, and then speaking of writers, obviously there's a long tradition of science fiction stories set on Mars. So just which of those have had the most impact on you? You know, that's a great question. I um, love Mars in science fiction because it's got so many different faces. It can be Ray Bradbury's Mars, it can be Edgar Rice Burroughs' Mars, Stanley G. Weinbaum's Mars, Kim Stanley Robinson's Mars, Ben Bova's Mars. Everybody who comes to look at it, it's a Rorschach test. Every writer who's, and H.G. Wells, of course, War of the Worlds, every writer who's come to look at Mars sees it in a different way. And that's the beauty of the planet over history. A, 
we have learned more about it, and so we keep reimagining it. And B, even the present day, I said quite, I think, um, forcefully that I think there probably is, there, there was life on Mars and probably still is life on Mars. Other people look at that same rock hanging there in space and say it's sterile now and it always has been sterile. It's wonderful that you can respond in all these different ways to it. That said, the Mars stories that I enjoyed the most were not actually uh, novels about Mars. I read all of the Burroughs. I, uh, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson's read Mars. Uh, but I actually liked short story treatments of Mars. And my favorite one uh, is one that Campbell turned down, I think, uh, was a Martian Odyssey. Uh, actually, I guess it was written a little bit before Campbell took over Astounding, a Martian Odyssey by a guy named Stanley G. Weinbaum. And it was the kind of story that you can't sell anymore. It's just a travel log. It's a guy who goes to Mars, his little ship crashes away from the base camp, and while his co-astronauts uh, uh, are trying to find him, he tries to trek across Mars to make it back to safety. And along the way has an endless series of adventures meeting all kinds of interesting Martian life forms, including one Martian life form based on silicon instead of carbon chemistry. Uh, and I loved that story when I first encountered it in the book, The Science Fiction Hall of Fame, edited by Robert Silverberg. It's the first story in the book. And I still love that story to this day. Stanley G. Weinbaum's A Martian Odyssey. Sadly, Weinbaum died a year and a half after his first story was published and never really made the popular impact on the field that he should have. His name should be as well known when we talk about Mars as Burroughs or Bradbury. Well, actually, speaking of Burroughs, there, isn't there a bar named Barsoom or something like that? Yes. You know, I, as far as I, my research showed, nobody had yet used the name Barsoom for a bar on Mars. And it just seems such a natural joke to me. I'm sure somebody who's listening to this podcast will now comment and say, no, 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 you know, um, uh, it was used in this story or that story. But Barsoom, of course, is the name from Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter stories. Uh, the natives don't call Mars Mars. They they call it Barsoom. And it just seemed like a, a cute and fun name to use. And I mentioned a little bit about this walking in the footsteps of, you know, Isaac Newton said, if I've seen farther than those who've gone in front of me, it's because I stand on the shoulders of giants. You can't be a 21st century science fiction writer writing about Mars without doing tips of the hat to Edgar Rice Burroughs, to Ray Bradbury, to H.G. Wells, to the guys who first put it in the popular imagination that Mars was an exciting place. And I like to sprinkle those throughout Red Planet Blues. Okay, so I listened to an interview you did about uh, the TV show based on your novel Flash Forward. And you, you talked about meeting with the producers. And I was really struck by how many rules they had about how uh, that a television show had to conform to it couldn't look like the future it had to be set in a major american city the main characters couldn't be scientists they had to be cops doctors and lawyers uh everyone has to be young and gorgeous stuff like that yes now all that said for american network primetime television that's what they were aiming for obviously there's shows television shows around the world that are set in the united states but for the american primetime television market those were the things that they felt uh would be the keys to success none of which were in my novel, Flash Forward. Flash Forward was set in Europe. Flash Forward, um, the novel, has people flashing forward 21 years, not six months, so that the beautiful young people who might have been in the cast would spend a large part of their screen time looking old and haggard. That was a non-starter. Uh, and at the time, this was now 2000 and 
seven when we had this meeting, uh, the show went on the air in 2009. At the time, it was a fair statement to say that the only shows that Americans watch in big numbers are shows about lawyers, doctors, or cops. Now, I had the great pleasure one day working in the writer's room at Flash Forward's um, offices on the um, uh, Disney lot in Los Angeles to say to uh, the staff writers, sorry, guys, I got to leave early today. I'm heading off to a taping of that show that kicks our butt every week in the ratings. That is about three physicists and an engineer, which, of course, was Big Bang Theory. 2007, Big Bang Theory was not the breakout hit that it became in 2009. So, yes, absolutely, those rules made sense at the time they were articulated, which is now six years ago. So you, you think that those were true at the time, though? I mean, like I heard you say that when you first started out, everyone told you not to write books set in Canada because they wouldn't sell and that that just turned out to be superstition or something. It's not. A... Yes, uh, it turned out that nobody had empirically tested that, that uh, people writing uh, popular fiction in Canada, mystery science fiction, were shying a fantasy, shying away from any Canadian contents or reference because they had assumed that it would not work. Now, there have been TV shows about scientists. I can name a, a bunch from the 1970s that lasted a single season or less. Gemini Man is one. It starred Ben Murphy. It was actually a riff on um, The uh, Invisible Man by H.G. Um, Wells. It uh, lasted, I think, one season. It was about scientists. Didn't last. Man from Atlantis was a TV series about uh, scientists at the Foundation for Oceanic Research uh, and uh, their discovery of a um, living, breathing Aquaman kind of thing. It did not last. Um, the ones that did last, the $6 million man, when they went from being a um, pilot film in the first two uh, subsequent 90-minute movies, when they went to an hour-long format, I did not like this move, but what did they do? They took the three characters they had, the superhero, the government bureaucrat, and the scientist, Dr. Rudy Wells, who had made Steve Austin into a cyborg, and dropped the scientist. And he was gone as a regular from the first three seasons of Six Million Dollar Man. Uh, because people don't tune in to watch scientists unless they are forensic scientists. Dexter is a scientist. He's a forensic scientist, uh, which is close enough to being either a cop or a lawyer or a doctor. Uh, to be palatable. But um, yeah, it was advice that actually made sense. I wish it wasn't true. I wish that more than just as uh, comedic figures, people would rally around the interesting lives of scientists in television drama. But it's been a very, very hard sell to the public to make that happen. So I saw on your Facebook page that you recently appeared on Naked News. I did for the third time. So what, what's, what's that like? Well, Naked News is the longest-running pay-per-view show on the internet, uh, and it is, I think it was the New York Times that said, has the best international coverage this side of the BBC. It's a legitimate news program that happens to be presented by beautiful women who strip naked while they're presenting news stories, and they also do um, uh, lighter uh, magazine-style pieces, including uh, interviews, occasionally with authors or with actors or musicians and so forth. And it happens that a lot of the people at Naked News are fans of my books, which I'm very, very grateful for. And uh, they love having me on, and I love talking to beautiful naked women, so it strikes me as a win-win scenario. Victoria Sinclair was the name of the woman who interviewed me this time. 
Uh, she's the senior anchor. She's also the longest serving anchor at, uh, at original anchor at Naked News. She's absolutely brilliant. And I will tell you this, and let's say present company accepted, <laughs> no reflection on the current interview that we just did. It was the best interview that I've done in the last year. And last year, when they interviewed me about triggers, and I can confidently say now that was my previous book, we're no longer talking about triggers, we're my new book, Red Planet Blues, they did the best interview of all the dozens and dozens of interviews I did about triggers. Why? One simple expedient. The interviewer actually reads the book from cover to cover. Most interviewers don't. They rely on secondary material, press release, dust jacket copy, what have you, Amazon write-ups. She read the whole book thought deeply about the issues in the book, asked probing questions, and was willing to let me, which a lot of uh, television interviews won't let you do, let anybody do, answer at length. Uh, I also saw that you just donated your papers to McMaster University. They're actually sending the truck on Monday. So uh, the, the, the paperwork for the donation has been done. The actual physical donation is happening, as you and I speak now, five days from now. Yeah, absolutely. McMaster University in Hamilton, Ontario approached me. They're not my alma mater. I've never taught there. Uh, I have no connection to them, but they have very large holdings in the field of Canadian literature. Now, I've been approached by a lot of uh, institutions, including the University of California, Riverside, the University of South Florida, uh, various other places who wanted me for their, my papers, for their holdings in science fiction. And at the end of the day, I thought, you know what? My legacy in science fiction is secure. I've won the Hugo for best novel. I've won the Nebula for best novel. I've had a TV ad series adapting one of my books. My legacy in Canadian literature, it's always been an uphill climb for anybody who writes genre fiction to be taken as part of the literary establishment. I was very flattered and moved that McMaster wanted to put me along the side, uh, the papers of great Canadian writers and editors, uh, including Pierre Burton, whose retreat uh, I started writing Red Planet Blues at. I'm thrilled at this opportunity and very much looking forward, not just to the donation of the papers, getting all this stuff out of my home will free up a large amount of space, but McMaster is also hosting a uh, academic, three-day academic conference this fall, fall of 2013, called Science Fiction, the Interdisciplinary Genre, uh, because so much of my science fiction crosses genres, you know, Red Planet Blues is uh, exobiology, paleontology combined together. That kind of juxtaposition is a hallmark of my work. They're doing an academic conference about the juxtaposing of interesting things within science fiction uh, in honor of this. And I'm really thrilled about that. Science fiction, the interdisciplinary genre in uh, September at McMaster University in Hamilton, free and open to the public. Great. And uh, how about the Lifeboat to the Stars Award? Yeah, indeed. I am the coordinating judge, which means that I am the chief uh, cat herder of all the other judges uh, who are looking for a work published in 2012 or 2011 that deals realistically and significantly with interstellar travel. Not interplanetary, but interstellar travel. And surprisingly, as we've gone hunting for these, there have been very few in the last couple of years. It used to be such a mainstay of science fiction, and it just isn't really that much anymore. But we've been looking at, I'm not giving away our short list because that hasn't been decided yet, but amongst the books that I've been looking at, of course, are 
Larry Niven and uh, Gregory Benford have their first collaboration out, The Bowl of Heaven, which is a wonderful book. I say that because my cover blurb appears on the front cover of that book. Kevin Anderson and Steve Saville have a great book out called Tau Ceti, about the first generation ship uh, voyage to the star Tau Ceti, one of our nearer neighbors. There's wonderful stuff out there that we're sorting through and looking for the best of the best to give an award and to bring it all full circle at the end of our interview at the John W. Campbell Conference, which is held each year uh, at the Center for the Study of Science Fiction, um, University of Kansas in Lawrence, Kansas. The award, Lightboat to Stars Award, $1,000 will be given at the Campbell Conference in June. Yeah, great. And then just are there any other new or upcoming projects that you'd like to mention? Well, I'm very excited about the fact that I'm just embarking on an adaptation of Triggers, uh, my novel Triggers, as a, a screenplay. Uh, I've been commissioned by a uh, production company, a very credible one. I, I won't say the name right now because we're still dotting I's and crossing T's on some of the paperwork, but they want to adapt and make a very big budget feature film out of my novel Triggers. And um, unusually, in most cases, somebody else does the screenplay. I'm a trained uh, broadcaster. My degree is in radio and television arts. I'm a member of the Writers Guild of America, the Writers Guild of Canada. I've been doing script writing professionally for 20 years. uh, And uh, those credentials were sufficient to convince them that I had the chops to tackle this. And I'm really, really enjoying that project and, and very, very excited about the prospect of it moving ahead and actually getting made. All right, great. So I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Robert J. Sawyer, thanks so much for joining us on Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. My pleasure. And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Robert J. Sawyer for joining us on the show. And as we mentioned for our panel today, we'll be discussing the controversy surrounding Games Workshop, trademarking the term Space Marines. And we're joined by a special guest geek, Matt London. He's a graduate of the Clarion Writers Workshop and the New York University School of Film and Television. He's written about film, video games, and other stuff for Tor.com, Lightspeed, and Realms of Fantasy. He's also the creator of the animated web series Space Pirates in Space, which you can watch now at SpacePiratesInSpace.com. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. And so I think just to start out with, we're just going to lay out the basic facts of what happened here for people who haven't been following this. So basically, Games Workshop is an English game company. They make pen and paper role-playing games and tabletop war games, uh, most notably the Warhammer 40,000 science fiction war game in which Space Marines figure prominently. And so a couple months ago, uh, an author named MCA Hogarth self-published a book called Spots the Space Marine and released it on Amazon.com. And I guess after a few months, she got an email from Amazon saying that they had pulled the book due to a complaint from Games Workshop. And I think she was like sort of surprised and didn't believe this was happening and kind of got in touch with Games Workshop and their lawyers confirmed yet that yes this was real and yes they were serious and they felt that they had the trademark on the term space marine and nobody else could use it i guess she approached some lawyers and it was gonna it turned out that just the most basic rudimentary pursuing of legal uh, action was going to cost more than she had made from the book and so it just was not financially viable for her to pursue uh, a legal defense and she blogged about this and fortunately that sort of caught on and it 
Uh, I think Scalzi posted it, and then Boing Boing posted it. I think io9 posted it, and it eventually made major media. The BBC covered the story. And I think basically what happened is that Corey finally put her in touch, this author put her in touch with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And I think at that point, Games Workshop sort of backed off, or Amazon at, at any rate, put the book back up on uh, up on their store. And uh, that's sort of where things stand at the moment. So I'm just sort of vaguely aware of actually who Games Workshop is. I mean, when I played Dungeons & Dragons in high school, I was sort of aware that they had this computing pen and paper role-playing game called Warhammer and that they published a magazine called White Dwarf. And that's really about all I know about them. Uh, do either of you guys have much experience with their products? Yeah, I haven't I haven't actually played any Warhammer games either, but I know about them because, like you, I, I heard about them in relation to Dungeons & Dragons. And one of my frustrations uh, always has been when I go to a, a hobby store, like a, like a comic store where they sell D&D miniatures and whatnot, uh, they have, they almost always have Warhammer 40k and Warhammer miniatures, but they don't have actual D&D miniatures anymore, I guess because the miniatures are much more important to Games Workshop games because of all the wargaming type stuff that happens in them. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's about the limit of my experience. And, well, and I know that they've published a lot of books set in their, in their worlds as well. They eventually got successful enough that they spun off their own, like, original publishing division, which, uh, became Solaris. And now it's just completely independent of Games Workshop, I believe. But uh, Solaris Books in the UK, they publish original science fiction and fantasy, but they sort of, the, it started off as a spinoff of Games Workshop tie-in novels. I actually grew up playing uh, Warhammer 40k. It's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. I mean, you know, there was this period in the late 80s, early 90s, sort of into the late 90s, where D&D had so established itself as like the dominant tabletop game system that people were just hungry for more and they wanted to like grab any other kind of game that they could. So there was, you know, Battletech and there was like a Star Wars card game, all sorts of different kinds of things. And of course, Magic the Gathering. Warhammer was just an, another one of these kinds of games. It was really cool because it kind of felt like the most sophisticated board game you'd ever play. It had a lot of the intricacies of a tabletop role-playing game like Dungeons and Dragons, but it was all right there in front of you. And you felt very much like uh, a commanding general leading your army into battle. Uh, uh, Real-time strategy video games like Warcraft, Starcraft drew a lot of inspiration from these early tabletop games. Uh, I mean, whenever I would see the photos of Warhammer uh, 40K, they have these elaborate, I mean, amazingly well-painted miniatures and these elaborate dioramas. And I would always think to myself, who has the space, money, or time to actually play this game? It just looks like I can't even imagine setting it up in my house and then my mom would come along and say, like, okay, you have to clean this up. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, is that an accurate impression, Matt? Like, how do you actually play a game with that many pieces and such elaborate scenery and all that kind of stuff? I think it's similar in a lot of ways to Magic or one of the other collectible card games or even a hobby like woodworking or, you know, someone who works on cars in their garage. Uh, it's something that you spend a lot of time doing, but it's, you know, it's a hobby, something where you can sit in a workshop, work with your hands, paint the figurines individually, 
take a lot of care and consideration into, into constructing the landscapes on which your battles take place. And then much more than just building a plastic or a metal model, a ship in a bottle, you actually get to play with these things that you've built and uh, challenge your friends. The, the Games Workshop brand is actually successful enough that they actually have a standalone store in Manhattan, or they did at least a couple of years ago. Uh, I don't know if it's still there, but the idea that any company would have a standalone store like that was kind of baffling to me when I saw it. And I, and I had to go in just to check it out because, I mean, not that, I mean, I, like I said, I've never played any of the games and I wasn't particularly interested in, in the miniatures or anything. But uh, yeah, it was just kind of astonishing to see that they had their own store. Uh, the store is still there. It's on 8th Street between Broadway and Mercer. And uh, when I was at New York University, I'd walk by it every single day on my way to school. And it was always really funny to see the uh, non-initiated geeks kind of staring into the window because they put all of the figurines on display in the front window of the store. And it was I, I would get a kick out of like seeing little old ladies walking their dogs and squinting at these two inch tall orcs with uh, assault rifles, <laughs> you know. Well, because I think a lot of like science fiction writers like me who aren't so much into the tabletop gaming this lawsuit just comes out of nowhere. You're like, what the hell? Why would you sue someone over the term Space Marines? But what I've read online is a lot of tabletop gamers are saying, oh, yeah, this is just par for the course from Games Workshop. They do this kind of thing all the time. Uh, one guy talked about how he had had a fan club called the Warhammer Veterans Club or something like that. And they got a cease and desist letter saying they had to stop using the word Warhammer in their the name of their game club. I guess one of the reasons they have these uh, location-based centers is because they've really tried to discourage people from selling the miniatures online because I guess that undercuts their profits somehow. And so I, I was really just totally not... A, if, you, if you had told me Games Workshop had gone out of business in 1999, I would have accepted that without question because that's really the last time I heard of it when I was in high school. And I guess they don't have this huge internet presence in part because they're so controlling about what you're allowed to put online. Even, you know, People write pages saying, like, let me explain. This This rule is a little complicated. Let me just explain to you how it works. That gets pulled down, stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I largely know that they're still in business because of their book division, because I see reviews of them crop up now and then. And there's actually there's places like SF Signal, uh, which is a like it's sort of a fanzine review blog, and they review their books very frequently. And there's, I mean... I haven't read any of them, but there's a lot of people who read those and they, they just love those. Like I see them and, and they get this like glowing review, like five out of five stars. And then like, you know, list no cons, like his SF signal always lists a, has a list of pros and cons for each review. And I see that and I'm like, wow, really? I mean, can that really be so good? I mean, because, uh, you know, we sort of, I mean, I'm sure all of us have read tie in novels before and tie in novels usually aren't as good as original stuff just because they're by definition, they're derivative, but. I'm as open to the idea as anyone that you can take the setting of a game or whatever and write something actually really unique and original uh, based in that, just using the framework and tools that the game provided. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I have to say I was actually kind of curious to try some of them because, I mean, I haven't really read much tie-in since I you know, became an editor, but those have been well-received enough that I was definitely curious about them. Well, Matt, why don't you tell us just, I mean, I know that the the setting involves these space marines. They're kind of religious zealots fighting orcs. Is that uh, is what else do I need to know about the setting? Originally, there was the game Warhammer, and Warhammer was a classic 
epic fantasy module. So you could choose to be humans, elves, dwarves, orcs, a couple other races, I think. Then Warhammer 40k came out, which is Warhammer 40,000. It takes place in the year 40,000. Galactic spanning civilizations. And each of the classic fantasy races has their intergalactic analog. So there are spacefaring elves, spacefaring dwarves, spacefaring orcs, and humans, which now take on the guise of space marines. There's also a couple of other more, you know, alien-like alien races. Um, actually, there's a insectoid race, which is pretty reminiscent of the bugs in, um, in Starship Troopers, which were then later echoed in Starcraft with the Zerg. Well, uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, the Heinlein Starship Troopers. I, I think part of the reason that the Space Marine Weagle claim is really sticking in the craw of a lot of writers is this sense that Games Workshop has just sort of pillaged a century's worth of ideas that were originated by uh, novel and short story writers, and then is trying to turn around and tell that same community of writers, you're not allowed to use this anymore. Uh, I was actually curious uh, because I, I believe they also have tried to trademark things like elf and dwarf and whatnot, which obviously is ridiculous as well. But uh, when was Warhammer created as compared to D&D? Because Dungeons and Dragons was around for a long time, I think, before Warhammer came along. So the fact that they were trying to trademark terms like that, even in a game context, seems ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, Warhammer started, I think, in 1987. Oh, so way after D&D. Way after D&D. Well, yeah, let me just, I mean, I came across this post online where somebody says, terms they claim to be their IP, according to page six of their legal disclaimer, Orc, Goblin, Undead, Codex, Inferno, Inquisitor, Marauder, Dwarf, Elves, Terra, Mars, Tomb King, Talisman, Warmaster, Orc, Armageddon, Halfling, Wizardman, Ogre. <laughs> and this person, has, <laughs> apparently if Tolkien wrote or uttered it, they claim to own it. I th- uh, well, Armageddon's probably the most hilarious one. It's like, um, <laughs> that's in the Bible? <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah, so actually, that sort of brings to mind one of the things I stumbled across when I was reading about this uh, online. Uh, like you, I know uh, I read a bunch of comments and whatnot from various lawyers or people who claim to be lawyers and stuff. And I saw people saying how it was relevant that they were claiming a trademark on or at least their initial claim of trademark was based on only the game context. And then now that they're publishing all these books, they're trying to assert this trademark onto the literary realm as well. Whereas they actually have some precedent for having a trademark in the game realm. Although like what you were just reading that list of terms, like you say, I mean, it was, uh, or as the commenter said, it, you know, basically anything that Tolkien had uttered, uh, they think they got they the trademark on. And so I don't understand how they could have any sort of trademark standpoint on any of those terms, uh, let alone Space Marine. Space Marine might be a different situation since I don't know if there's any any other uh, role-playing games or other types of games. I assume they mean specific. I assume it's specific role-playing games that would be relevant here um, in which they could claim to have a trademark. But uh, I'm sure well, there must have been other uses of Space Marine and other role-playing games. Yeah, well, I mean, we should say, first of all, that the use of Space Marine in literature goes back to 1932. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually, I mean, people have just been posting example after example of role-playing games and tabletop games that use Space Marine, or were even called Space Marine, uh, that precede Warhammer 40k. So they certainly have no claim whatsoever to have originated the phrase or to have been the first to have used it in tabletop gaming or anything like that. 
Uh, is that a prerequisite for a trademark or can somebody who just comes along later decides to trademark something even though they didn't originate it? Is that like a thing? From what I've been able to gather anyway, uh, prior art, which is what we're talking about, is not necessarily does not necessarily invalidate a trademark where it, is, mm-hmm. it would invalidate a, a copyright claim, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems, I mean, it seems like the law is incredibly complicated. Uh, as you said, I mean, dozens of lawyers have weighed in on this online. None of them seem to agree with each other. So it's really hard to say what the law actually is. But I gather that, the, I mean, the reason trademark exists, as I understand it, is that it's supposed to be that people aren't buying products from somebody else who think that they're buying your products. Mm-hmm. So if there's some title or something that uh, is so closely associated with your product that consumers might be confused that they're buying your product or somebody else's, you can trademark that. I, th- I think it's it's fine. You can come along and trademark some word that was a common word, like uh, somebody gave the example of Wolverine, right? Obviously, Marvel Comics wasn't the first company to ever mm-hmm. come up with the term Wolverine, but they can trademark it as a comic book mm-hmm. hero, and then nobody else can come along and make a comic book hero called Wolverine. Well, I have I have a question about that though, because I wondered about this in a publishing context. For instance. I worked at a magazine called the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction, which has a very generic title, obviously. And I've seen other magazines come along that sort of have a similar title. And I mean, I don't know if the the full title, the Magazine of Fantasy and Science Fiction was ever trademarked. But I mean, would could they actually trademark that? I mean, in terms of like in magazine context, so like no other magazine can be called this. I mean, even with such a generic name as that. I think you could, yeah. I mean, I mm-hmm. think that's distinctive enough, you know. Mm-hmm. That, but I don't think you could then turn around and threaten to sue people who use the words fantasy <laughs> or science fiction in their right. titles, which I think is equivalent of what Games Workshop is trying to do here. Mm-hmm. First of all, I just wanted to say, John, I love uh, this is going back a minute, but I love your use of the term "are lawyers" or "claim to be lawyers." <laughs> I love that. I am not a lawyer, but I claim to be one on internet message boards. <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty of people who were claiming to be lawyers that actually weren't Yeah, just because they were like, hey, I know about this stuff and I want to be taken seriously. You know, there is a long history of this kind of, you know, going back and forth. Like, think about the whole fuss that was made over the sci-fi channel changing its name oh. to S-Y-F-Y, mm-hmm. right? And a lot of that had to do with the fact that they wanted to be able to brand their content. But with a generic name, sci-fi, a term that can't, you know, that's not copyrighted, not that's not trademarked. Uh, they had to distinguish themselves in some way in order to create that uh, distinction. Yeah, well, that was also a funny case because they had to buy it to actually be able to use it because somebody else was already using SYFY. There was a site called Sci-Fi Portal that spelled it that way. And I believe it was Sci-Fi Portal. I, b- I believe that's the name of it. But anyway, it was Sci-Fi and then one other word. And uh, they, uh, they, they bought that from the company. And then that company had to change their name to something else. They actually changed it to Airlock Alpha, which I think is actually better. But... Yeah, I just thought that was interesting that they wanted to brand themselves with something that they could trademark, but they didn't actually, there wasn't actually anything available that they wanted to use, so they bought something. But sort of the sequence of events here was that, you know, this woman's book was on the Amazon store, and Games Workshop's lawyers sent a note to Amazon saying you have to take down this book. And Amazon apparently just took it down without thinking, even thinking about it. And I mean, Cory Doctorow was talking about this is such a problem with, uh, you know, under a sort of a DMCA. Act, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, is a uh, an act of Congress that was intended to uh, make it possible for people to enforce copyright claims online. But it's sort of a guilty until proven innocent 
sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's like if you were to, if somebody accuses you of a crime, if they were to lock you up and then you have to prove that you didn't commit the crime and that could take forever, who even knows if you're able to do it. There was a whole thing about that uh, during the Hugo ceremony last year Mm -hmm. when uh, during, there was a live stream of the award ceremony during the dramatic presentation, short form nomination, uh, the, the announcing of the nominees they showed a 15 second clip of an episode of community and there was a takedown on the live stream. So the live stream of the Hugos got shut down because of this totally legitimate and legal uh, broadcast of 15 seconds of a sitcom on NBC because NBC is so vigilant about their takedown notices that they just tracked it, claimed infringement and the the, the live stream was automatically shut down before anyone thought to check to see if maybe they actually did have permission to post this clip. Now, was that a bot? I thought that was a bot that did that. Yeah, it was a bot that did that. So, so basically, there's an algorithm analyzing, going through the inter- internet, looking to see if any of the video matches video that they own, and then automatically sending a, a DMCA takedown thing and that's and so they shut down this awards ceremony even though the award ceremony was perfectly within their rights to show these short clips uh, of the nominees uh yeah as far as amazon uh acting without having to just you know because they got the takedown notice that doesn't actually surprise me because in my role as publisher of lightspeed i am essentially self-publishing stuff through their uh kdp uh platforms kindle direct publishing so I ha- I'm perfectly within my rights to publish each issue of Lightspeed. And so I post them there and it's usually fine. But every once in a while, it's like it's like every few months or so, I get an email from KDP telling me, hey, we've noticed that this book has content that appears in another book. Please <laughs> prove that you own the rights to publish this. And I'm like, oh, my God, I- I've like sent them the contract that indicates I'm the owner and publisher of Lightspeed so many times now. It's just getting ridiculous. And the thing is, it's like, well, short stories get reprinted. You know, so it's like it makes sense that short stories are going to appear in multiple volumes and it's not. And and so it's like I assume it's the same sort of deal where it's like this bot and it's checking to see if the content in this book also appears in this other book. And if it does, then they just automatically assume that some like, you know, if it's somebody on KDP, they assume that you're infringing because you're not a major publisher or whatever. So it's it's kind of frustrating. I The last time I it happened, I sent them what they asked for and I said, hey, you know, this keeps happening. Is there any way that you guys can just like flag on the record that I'm a legit publisher and that I actually do have the rights to do this? And I explained the whole deal where short stories do get reprinted and whatnot. And I actually did get a response from a person. So hopefully that will solve that problem. But it's just, it's like so frustrating. And it's just like, it ruins my night every time it happens. It's like, ah, I got to do this again. And I just get so aggravated. But I mean, that's what happens when you have these automated systems that don't actually understand the, you know, they, they will, cause they can actually understand the fine intricacies of, of various publishing agreements. Well, to be fair to the robots, humans don't know what short stories are <laughs> either. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, and, and, but it seems like, uh, Games Workshop, I mean, it seems, I mean, in hundreds of comments I've read, I haven't read anyone who thinks that they're in the right <laughs> here. Um, right. I don't, and I don't, I haven't even found anyone who really thinks that they're, legally that they have a decent legal claim i mean uh for one thing they use this dmca act to to take down this book that refers to copyright they're not actually making a copyright claim they're making a trademark claim which is a completely different Mm -hmm. thing they shouldn't be using that at all the closest you can imagine to them having a legitimate case is if the term space marine had become so closely associated with their product 
that people would assume that anything that says Space Marine on it is one of their products, which I think is just flatly not true. I mean, if you were to ask me, what is Space Marine? What products does that make you think of? Uh, Games Workshop would not even be in the top five. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. Right. Mine would be Aliens, Starship Troopers, Heinlein stuff in general, uh, Doom, uh, mm-hmm. Halo, uh, Bay and Books stuff in general. Starcraft. Yeah, Starcraft would be there. I sort of think that this is a case of aggressive lawyering. It tends to happen a lot with entertainment companies. You know, I mentioned the, like, the sci-fi thing. But also, if you think about, like, there was a story about this guy, Notch, who was the creator of Minecraft, had teamed up with the writer of Penny Arcade to make a new game called Scrolls. And it's sort of a... Magic the Gathering-esque game where you have specific spells or commands on the different scrolls and you, like, play against other people. And uh, the creators of Elder Scrolls sent them a cease and desist, saying that the term scrolls wa- fell underneath the trademark for their for the name of their game, Elder Scrolls. Yeah, no, a lot of people I saw yesterday were mentioning that as an ex- as an re- example of a ridiculous thing. Another right. one was just Marvel and DC generally uh, trademarking the term oh. superheroes. Yeah, right. Um, John, did you see there's actually a, a Rich Horton anthology called Superheroes yeah. that just came out? Yeah, yeah. Are they going to run into trouble with that? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure how valid that trademark claim is, though. I guess we'll find out. I mean, if they if anyone notices. Mm-hmm. Is the thing is like when you do something with a smaller press, uh, it's sort of questionable how likely it is that any major entertainment company will find it. But on the other hand, well, who would have you know, thought I mean, the MCA Games Workshop, right? Would have, yeah, exactly. Yeah, who would have thought they would have found her? I mean, and it seems like I mean a lot of people are really criticizing them for going after people who don't have the resources to defend themselves in court, rather than mm-hmm. say Blizzard. Uh, who, right. I mean, everyone says you know, Warcraft and Starcraft are total ripoffs of Warhammer and Warhammer 40k, but you know, not in a legally meaningful way. And if Games Workshop were to try to go after Blizzard, Blizzard would just annihilate them. And so they're, they're just, I mean, I think Corey was sort of saying they're just trying to go after small fish on these sort of bullshit things and sort of build up enough of these bullshit cases that you do start associating Space Marines inevitably with Games Workshop because you think, oh, yeah, that's the thing I'm going to get sued for. Huh. There's the issue of legal precedent also. If you are found in court to have a legitimate claim to the term, then you have a much better case going after someone bigger. But you have to take out someone who can't defend themselves first in order to establish that precedent. Mm-hmm. It just seems like, what, what is there actually enough benefit of them being able to trademark the term Space Marine that it's worth all of the negative press that they're going to get by going after people like Hogarth? Well, is it? I think there's a couple of different questions, right? Like, are they in the right legally no are they in the right morally no from a pr perspective how is this it's cat- it's a catastrophic disaster i mean i can't even tell you how many people i've seen saying i'm boycotting games workshop i'm never buying anything of theirs ever again after this mm-hmm. and then even is it good from a purely selfish commercial standpoint to prevent other people from using the term space marine in the title of a product i don't even see that as an as an upside for them uh, i mean is anyone who buys this Hogarth's spots the Space Marine? Is that hurting Games Workshop's bottom line? That it's a totally preposterous. And if anything, someone might read that book 
and develop a fondness for the idea of Space Marines and then mm -hmm. come across Games Workshop's products and say, oh, I like Space Marines. Let me give this a try. It just seems like a lose, 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 lose for them on every possible, from every possible angle. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. All right. So, I mean, the other thing I was going to bring up is, can you think of a more generic term that's used in science fiction <laughs> than space marine? Because I, I can't. I was trying to think of one uh -huh. that is, you know, you would say, okay, this is the most generic term currently in use in science fiction uh, is space marine. Can anyone even I, come up with something? Uh, I mean, I would have said spaceship or, you know, I mean, that's, uh, I guess that's not necessarily exclusive to science fiction because we have space shuttles and stuff like that, you know, and those are technically spaceships. But uh, yeah, I mean, spaceship was the first thing that came to mind. Um, I bet we could think of other things that were sort of similarly generic that don't have the word space in them. But yeah, space in almost anything <laughs> is going to be pretty generic. But it just seems like Space Marines is like in every single video game. I mean, I think yeah. that's what, what, what really puts it over the top for me is a science fiction video game is like 98% certain to be about space marines right <laughs> yeah um, right true so i just think it's funny that you know they get in trouble for suing over their trademark right to literally the most generic term in the genre and i guess that, that brings i mean matt was saying i was wondering like why are game companies i mean matt was saying like, oh, entertainment companies kind of act this way and do book publishers i mean do authors ever act this way i mean do like i mean in in our interview with um <laughs> Robert J. Sawyer, he talks about how he wanted to use the same title as this Alan Steele novella. And mm. he just like emailed Alan Steele and said, hey, do you mind if I use the title? And Alan Steele was like, no, I'd be honored. It just seems like authors have a completely different culture of, you know, the, of sharing, you know, you don't, you can't claim certain things in the same way and like sue each other over, mm. over these things. Whereas it seems like comic book companies and film studios and video game companies are just constantly suing each other. And is that just because there's more money at stake or, or because it's less about one individual and more about a big company that has a legal department and they don't care about their reputation within a, hmm. a broader community or am I, am I, am I just naive that this hmm. doesn't happen as much in novels or. I'm not, I'm not sure how often this kind of thing does happen in book publishing or prose publishing in general. Uh, I did see the other day an author who was complaining on Facebook because someone had used a title that she had been reserving or she had certainly talked about on her blog. And it was some phrase that she had come up with. And someone else had taken that phrase and used it as a title of their book. And then the publisher ended up sending a copy of the book to the author and asked her to blurb it or something. And she was very upset. And she was basically saying that the author was dead to her now. And, and how could you do this? And it was outright theft and that kind of thing. And I'm not sure I really see how that can be something you can complain about. I mean, because you can't actually copyright a title anyway, as people like Cory Doctorow have shown um, numerous times recently, where, you know, he's written a story with the same title as some other famous story and uses that as his inspiration for the story. That actually happened in Lightspeed and we did, and there did, uh, there did end up being a, a controversy after it. Um, Tobias Buckel published a story called, um, A Game of Rats and Dragon, which is slightly different than the Cordwainer Smith story called A Game of Rat and Dragon. Rats is plural in one and not the other, but Toby Buckel, uh, his story was 
explicitly an homage to the Cordwainer Smith story and is its own original thing. And the Cordwainer Smith story actually is in the public domain anyway, so it was irrelevant. But um, there actually was a huge blow up over it because somebody read that and they felt like it was stealing from Cordwainer Smith and uh, was outraged on his behalf. I mean, he's dead, but it, it just it blew up into a big, ridic- ridiculous controversy. And uh, I'm not sure I understand it because it's like, as you as, as I was saying, you, you can't actually copyright a title. So it's all irrelevant. But. Well, but those titles aren't registered trademarks, right? I mean, right. I couldn't write right. a novel called Star Wars, right? Or something. Right, right. You also couldn't use or- droids or lightsabers in that story. <laughs> Are those trademarks? Droid is droids tra- trademark? Yeah, in fact, if you ever watch a television commercial for an Android phone, you'll see the Lucasfilm logo in the small print at the bottom of the screen. I was thinking about the, you know, the question of our people in fiction and novels and publishing as intense about their intellectual property. Mm. And I was thinking about the Subudu uh, character challenges that they do during mm-hmm. like March Madness every year. Now I remember the first year they did it when George R. R. Martin would like write these little stories about Jamie Lannister dueling with all of these famous fantasy characters uh, from various series you know, finally going against Randolph Thor in the in the finals. <laughs> and in fact, uh, some of the other authors wrote their own versions of the of the duels at the same time. So it was really fun to like go from blog to blog and see how these like huge titans in the industry were depicting these cross universe battles, uh, all for the sake of this funny sort of character bracket. I can't imagine that happening in any sort of um like big budget way. But I think because of the goodwill of the various authors, they were all able to kind of play in each other's worlds a little bit. I mean, it was funny, actually. I mean, when the Space Marines thing blew up, I saw lots and lots and lots of people were emailing Games Workshop and customer service and stuff. And the letter that they were getting back was, I mean, it was very um, nondescript. But reading between the lines, it really seemed to me that the people were saying, take this up with our legal department. <laughs> we we don't want anything to do with this. Uh, we agree with you. Based, I mean, it was the sense I got from it anyway. You know, just because Games Workshop as an entity is doing this stuff doesn't mean certainly that all the employees are going along with this. A large percentage of them may think that this is absolutely outrageous, but they don't give directives to the legal department. You know, I I, I think writers are sort of more have more of a live and let live attitude, and because because there's just an awareness that people get ideas from here and then. People get ideas from there and everyone sort of take an idea from somewhere and someone else is taking your idea or whatever. And that's true also in a games workshop. And just as an example, I guess they really took some stuff from Michael Moorcock in his Elric series. He, you know, he developed this idea of law and chaos as these cosmic powers. And he drew a symbol of chaos, which is sort of uh, arrows pointing in eight different directions at once. And apparently they used this in Warhammer 40k. And it's something that he drew on his, he says, I drew this on my kitchen table. I, I invented this and they just took it and they never asked me about it or anything. And so it's just kind of funny that they would be, that it's, it's funny that they're so proprietary about all this stuff that, uh, that they've ripped off from other people. I guess this is a really bad time for me to mention that I've put forth a trademark on the term space pirates. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That would be ridiculous. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I mentioned that Matt uh, did this animated web series called Space Pirates in Space. So I was wondering if you should just change it to Space Marines in Space. And yeah. Just, uh, <laughs> stick it to the man. Yeah, actually, speaking of which, uh, in, in response to this controversy, uh, I know a bunch of people on Twitter just changed their handles to say Space Marine, or not their handles, but their, uh, you know, their name in, in their account. So like Paolo Bacigalupi, for instance, is now, uh, Paolo Space Marine Bacigalupi or whatever, or Paolo Space Marine or something. Like that's what his name says in, in the title field. And a bunch of other people did that too. Most people have reverted it back. I think Paolo must have forgot that it was there, but, cause it's still there, but. <laughs> or he's uh, just really, really incensed about it. Yeah, this. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's actually a Facebook page called the Space Marine Liberation Front. Hmm. Uh, so if you're interested in, they, they post all the news about this. So if you're interested in following the story and, you know, you can like them and, uh, stay active in the cause. So I'm kind of baffled about the, the whole Warhammer thing earlier where you said the Warhammer Veterans Club, like they couldn't use the term Warhammer. I mean, that's, that's just a thing. That's a thing that has like existed in history. I mean, how can they trademark that? Oh, actually, I should read, um, War, um, Games Workshop, uh, finally, they released a statement on their Facebook page. Okay, so this is their statement. They say, Games Workshop owns and protects many valuable trademarks in a number of territories and classes across the world. For example, Warhammer and Space Marine are registered trademarks in a number of classes and territories. In some other territories and classes, they are unregistered trademarks protected by commercial use. Whenever we are informed of or otherwise discover a commercially available product whose title is or uses a Games Workshop trademark without our consent, we have no choice but to take reasonable action. We would be failing in our duty to our shareholders if we did not protect our property. To be clear, Games Workshop has never claimed to own words or phrases such as Warhammer or Space Marine as regards their general use in everyday life, for example, within a body of prose. By illustration, although Games Workshop clearly owns many registered trademarks for the Warhammer brand, we do not claim to own the word Warhammer in common use as a hand weapon. Trademarks as opposed to use of a word in prose or everyday language are two very different things. Games Workshop is always vigilant in protecting the former, but never makes any claim to owning the latter. Some people were saying that they actually did tell her that she couldn't use the word Space Marine in the text mm -hmm. of her book, which seems to contradict what they're saying here. They actually right. posted this on their Facebook page and got so much blowback <laughs> in response that I, as far as I can tell, they actually took their Facebook page down and still haven't put it back up. So what they're saying is that uh, I mean, at least what this is saying is that you can use Space Marine in a work of body of prose, but you can't use it in the title is what they're saying. Yeah. Right. So, so for instance, any, just, just for point of reference, if you, if you were writing a story that had Disneyland or whatever in it, like there's nothing that Disney can do about that because that exists as a real place or whatever. And so you can tell fictional stories about it. You just can't use it in like your title or something. Yeah, well, the whole point of trademark, as I said, is that it's supposed to prevent confusion about mm -hmm. who's who's the source of this product. And so if I write a novel and I just say, oh, the characters went to Disneyland, no one's going to take that to think that this product is from Disney, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas if I use it in a title, there's conceivably some confusion about if I say, you know, Disneyland's adventure or something. Right. Well, I am confused about stuff like that, though, because there somebody made a film recently that was shot sort of unauthorized while he was at Disneyland. I don't know the specific specifics of it, but apparently like you need to get permission from Disney to actually shoot video while you're there or something. But then they, they actually shot this whole movie on the sly while they were at Disneyland or, or whatever scenes took place in Disneyland. And so like, I, I'm, I'm a little confused as how they can have any sort of protection for the visual depiction of their, rides and whatnot or their park like i mean is that covered by trademark or what is that what law is covering that 
Well, you can't film on private property without permission. Ah. That's against the law. Mm -hmm. Like, I am prevented from standing on your front lawn filming through your windows. I see. So it doesn't have Uh, anything. It doesn't have anything to do with trademark or or copyright or anything. It's just that. Well, if you film the Disney logo and display it without permission, it's just like drinking a can of Coke. That's why sodas and stuff are all blurred out uh, in reality television shows. Mm -hmm. So unless it's product placement. Right. Or sanctioned by the corporation. Yeah, I don't actually understand why any company would want that to be blurred out. Like, if you have a a can of a soda in a show, like, I mean, it's not like it's saying anything negative about the product. It just happens to be in a scene. Like, why would they want it to be blurred out? That doesn't make any sense to me. Because it's like, at the worst, it's free product placement. Well, what if it's like a serial killer and he likes Coke, right? Well, well, no, but I mean, I'm saying saying where it couldn't have any possible negative connotation. Where it's just like in a scene... And they're not talking about Coke or anything. It's just there's a can of Coke in the scene. Like, how is that going to be possibly negative at all? Well, I I don't know. Matt maybe knows more about this than I do. But it seems to me that you could potentially make a product look bad by having a serial killer drink it or something like that. Mm -hmm. And so there's always the the potential that someone could sue you for that. And so because of that, companies don't want to take the risk. So Mm -hmm. they don't show any products at all unless they've gotten a release or something for it. Mm Mm-hmm. Right, because the labor involved in checking every instance of a product being used for inappropriate use, it's better just to have a blanket policy of don't show my product without my permission. I'm sure that lawyers are going to listen to this (laughs) podcast and be completely mortified by our, our misinterpretation and outright factually inaccurate depictions of uh, descriptions of of the law but that's what you get it's a sci-fi podcast (laughs) (laughs) yeah Yeah, we're gonna get a lot of comments on this one for all yeah for all all your emails are about how uh inaccurate our legal advice is uh please post comments on wire.com and do not send them to my personal email address thank you And feel free to write your comments to spacepiratesinspace.com. <laughs> while you're there, watch a couple of videos. But while you're saying that, that's not true of books, right? I mean, I guess because it, it's not visual. I mean, you can certainly mention any kind of product. You can have a serial killer drinking a Coke in a novel and nobody's going to give you problems right, with that, right? You not know, that I've ever heard of. That's a good question. It depends. I know that Stephen King tends to give his novels epigraphs. Often there'll be lyrics from popular songs. Mm-hmm. and in every case, there is copyright information about the song. Well, you know. s- songs are different. Songs, you can't quote anything from a song. I don't, I'm not sure why that is as terms of fair use, uh, but uh, you can't quote anything out of a song without permission. And every time you see a song quoted in prose, whether in the body of prose or as an epigraph, uh, somebody paid for that. Right. Yeah, and they and paid usually, like $50,000. Yeah, yeah, usually some hugely exorbitant fee that most people couldn't even conceive of affording. And in a lot of cases, an author wants it, and the publisher might try to do it to make them happy. But if the author knew how much they were paying for that, like, I don't know if they would actually bother. They'd probably rather the publisher just gave that money to them. Because it's like, is it really worth it to pay $50,000 to have some song as an epigraph, you know, have a quote from a song? One thing I want to talk about is, like, as a writer, how are you supposed to know Mm-hmm. what's trademarked i mean i mean like how would this author mca hogarth ever in a million years think oh i'm writing spots the space marine maybe space marine which has been around since 1930 is trademarked by some company 
I was wondering if is there some way you can look that even look that up or something. And one of these uh, comments I came across, I guess you can go to the USPTO.gov is the website of the United States Patent and Trademark Office, and you can type in stuff and see if anyone has a patent or a trademark on it. Uh, Ooh, that sounds like a lot of fun. It's, <laughs> I, I just fiddled around with the website for a couple of minutes. I found it a bit opaque, but you can type in Space Marine and, and find the game workshop uh, entry there. So I don't know if, if maybe that's potentially useful for writers who, if you don't have your own legal staff, you can at least... Uh, but I, again, I mean, pro- I have a feeling that pretty much anything you type in, some <laughs> stupid thing's going to come up and you have no idea how legitimate it is. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, uh, domain squatters, you know, where any nut job can go ahead and register trademarks for all these things. I mean, I don't know what sort of qualifications or credentials you need to have to, to register a trademark. If you have to prove some sort of commercial use for the thing or whatever, like you, there, you have to prove that you actually do deserve to own this trademark or whatever. But I mean, like with a domain name, for instance, like you can anybody can just go register whatever they want, you know, even stuff that is obviously going to seem like it belongs to something else. And so it seems like there's a lot of the same type of confusion that could happen by having it be this open thing that anybody can just register for. I actually have a funny story about this related to Space Pirates. Mm. When I was creating the series and had to uh, find and buy my domain, uh, originally I thought that the show was going to be called Space Pirates, and that would be it. But I found that spacepirate.com was taken, spacepirates.com was taken. Actually, there's a, a web comic called Space Pirates with uh, a Y instead of an I. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're really great people, actually. Uh, and you should check out their comic as well. But I was like racking my brain. I wanted to have a really distinct name for the show. And, you know, I, I was sort of envious of the creator of XKCD because like, what a genius idea. Find the only available four-character <laughs> URL still available in 2000X and make that be the name of your thing. But, uh, you know, and so I was conflicted. I was like, should it be about Goop the Gooparian? Should it be the Boozy Dragon? I don't know. But then it sort of hit me all at once. Space Pirates in Space. It's longer, of course, but still pretty memorable and I think pretty funny. You know, I mean, the thing is, it's interesting because you can, uh, as long as you can just say it and people know how to get to it, it's like, that's good. Uh, it doesn't matter that it's longer because having it fit on like a business card or something isn't as important as being able to just tell somebody what it is because they'll just remember what that is. But yeah, no, I mean, that, that was an issue for me when I was trying to name Lightspeed and Nightmare as well. Um, and we actually were going to call Nightmare Pandemonium. Uh, initially, but then something else came out around the same time that was some sort of horror thing. There was like a horror comic that was going to be called Pandemonium or something. I don't know if it ever got off the ground, but it was. And and then also there was a, a small press that was publishing books that was that was called Pandemonium. And so it just was like, oh, there's too much stuff that's similar to that and and recent that we we should change the name of it. And uh, so we we came up with Nightmare. But I mean, we had to. I mean, that's, it's like so hard to come up with a name for a magazine and then to like, to find something that's actually available, um, in a useful URL and whatnot. We ended up with nightmare-magazine.com because somebody had nightmaremagazine.com. And, you know, for Lightspeed, we have just lightspeedmagazine.com with no dash. So it was like, you know, I would have rather it would just match that formulation just for consistency. But yeah, it's just 
kind of frustrating that uh, all these things are like taken already. And although it was interesting, uh, I know that you, you say like when XKCD ended up with the last four letter URL, uh, io9 actually ended up being io9 because of, you know, they wanted to have a short URL and they apparently they knew a guy who had bought up a bunch of three letter URLs and stuff like that uh, back in the day. And, uh, and he was willing to sell it to them. And so they just, they came up with the story of what the IO nine is, you know, it's like a brain implant or whatever. Um, and that's just sort of the excuse to have a three letter URL. And Tor.com actually ended up with their name, a similar situation. Um, they bought Tor.com way back when, and, but the, the book company's website is actually torbooks.com. And so they realized, Hey, you know what? We have this three letter URL. We should totally use that. I mean, one of the letters, one of, one of the posts I found from someone who claims to be a lawyer says, this is what I would do. And I am not a lawyer. I uh, don't take anything I say as uh, legal advice, but this person says, I would send the back a thing that says, your actions have interfered with my economic rights. Should you seek to enforce your rights? Be assured I will seek economic damages against you as well as the cancellation of your trademark and add a claim of fraud on the trademark office. I think that's what a company like Games Workshop, why they don't go after a company like Blizzard, is because mm-hmm. Blizzard would send them a response like this. Like, if you could get come anywhere near us, your trademarks are going to be nuked out of existence. <laughs> yeah. Well, the thing is, it's a, such a dangerous game for the companies like Games Workshop to engage in because you never know what kind of friends somebody has, even if they seem like they're just a small fry. Or if you're somebody like MCI Hogarth, who just puts out a plea on her blog, you know, and then people, somebody finds it and uh, boosts the signal. And then you get the attention of people like Cory Doctorow and the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I mean, you're just opening up uh, a huge can of worms. And so, uh, you know, you might end up in a situation where you're like that, where you end up with somebody like, the equivalent of Blizzard who has the big guns or the firepower and is willing to use them. Because when you have something that is patently unjust, you know, there's going to be people out there who are going to step up to try to defend that just out of principle. Does anyone know what the Pope hat is? Oh yeah. The, the blog Pope hat. Mm -hmm. Cause I just came across this, but they said that they lit up the Pope hat symbol. I mean, it looks like the bat symbol. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. But I guess it's some sort of list that lawyers who are willing to work pro bono get on. And mm-hmm. then, like, when they find some worthy case, they post it on here, and they say mm-hmm. 90% of the time they're able to find a lawyer uh, who's willing to take the case pro bono. Mm-hmm. And so they did that in this case. I don't know if if that had anything to do with it, but they did light, light up the Pope hat uh, for mm-hmm. MCA Hogarth in this case. Yeah, and uh, uh, the, the Pope hat blog actually did have a lot of com- uh, good commentary about this. So if you're interested in uh, reading more about it, you can check that out. You know, there's a there's a history of these kinds of things happening where somebody small suffers an injustice, they cry for help, the internet swoops to their rescue, and then the entire force of the internet comes sweeping down on these people. And, you know, sometimes it's, I mean, it's crushing, isn't it? I'm thinking about, like, the Penny Arcade versus Ocean Marketing scandal. <laughs> that was awesome. Or, but honestly, Monica... Like that whole thing, you know, it's crazy to think that everything we do now is public because of the internet and the consensus of the world is surprisingly not very difficult to wrangle. Also in publishing recently, there was this thing where Random House has this new ebook imprint. Uh, one's called Hydra, and they have different names for the different imprints depending on what genre it is. But the Hydra one is the science fiction or fantasy one. And apparently the contractual terms were very 
shall we say, predatory, at least in terms of uh, how it was being characterized by a lot of writers groups and whatnot, like uh, Syphilis Writer Beware program uh, highlighted them as being particularly um, egregiously bad terms for writers to sign and, and, and strongly advocated that writers not sign with them. And uh, John Scalzi, who's the president of CIFWA, just posting his own personal views, not the views of the organization. He did a lot of taking down of them on, on his own blog, just tearing them apart and, and showing all the ways in which it was a terrible contract for anyone to sign. And basically, yeah, the whole internet just got behind that and, and agreed that it was terrible. And, and Random House uh, listened, they, uh, to their credit, they, they said, Oh, Hey, so sorry about that. And uh, how about, how about we revise our terms thusly? And they, you know, they proposed new terms. And uh, I, I'm not sure that they're the best terms still, but at least now they're not as uh, bad as they seem to be before. Uh, and I, you know, I actually do wonder though about the MCA Hogarth case. I, I know that she got a lot of attention because of this and a lot of people chose to try to show their support by buying her book. And at least at one point, um, I saw a list of ebook bestsellers and her book was actually at the top of that list. So, uh, hopefully some good came out of it and she actually sold more books and maybe made a few more fans because of it. All right. Great. So I think we're going to, on that happy note, <laughs> I think we're going to wrap things up there. So Matt, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And thanks again to Robert J. Sawyer for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars in iTunes lately, including Christopher R. Brown and Steve Messner. Steve writes, in part, If you're even remotely interested in science fiction, writing, or video games, you owe it to yourself to hit the subscribe button and listen to this endlessly entertaining podcast. I recently got a new job, and one of the blessings slash curses is that it is very hands-on slash mind-off type of work. The first few days were torture. I found this podcast after deciding that I can better use this mental free time by listening to podcasts that will encourage me as a writer and help give me some mental legwork. I was not prepared for how addicted to this show I would become. Almost a month and a half in, and I have listened to just about every episode they have to offer. I absolutely love this podcast. It will open your eyes to a whole world of fiction that if you were like me, you had no idea existed. And once you know it does, it will never let you go. So thank you, Steve. Big thanks as well to Zach Chapman and Abigail Drake for becoming subscribers number 41 and 42. To see a list of all our subscribers, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on PayPal. All right, so that was our show. Thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your hosts, visit johnjosephadams.com or davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by Slipgate 9 Entertainment. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.